Are you looking for something fun to do with the kids at home that will keep them learning? The Washington Wizards Kids Club, presented by Giant, has really cool, free, printable activities available online at dcfamily.com slash kidsclub. Coloring books, math timetables, writing worksheets, word searches, and so much more are up now for you and your family to enjoy. Keep the kids entertained by checking it out now at dcfamily.com slash kidsclub. What's up, Wizards fans? Welcome to another episode of the Off the Bench podcast presented by the Alibaba Group and part of the Wizards Podcast Network. All podcasts on the Wizards Podcast Network are available wherever you get your podcasts and are featured on Wizards Radio 24-7 and the Wizards app. You can follow the Wizards Podcast Network on Twitter at WashWizardsPN and please subscribe, download, rate, and review wherever you listen. On today's episode of Off the Bench, Zach Rosen and I are joined by Dickie Simpkins, who is a part of three championships with the Chicago Bulls during his seven-year NBA career and currently works in the Wizards scouting department. Simpkins spent eight years prior with the Hornets scouting department, started his own basketball training company, and covered basketball for ESPN and FS1. With Simpkins, we talk about the last dance, his memories of the Bulls' second three-peat, his role as a scout, and more. Welcome, Dickie. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Um, we're recording this the day after the final episodes of The Last Dance aired, and uh, I want to go through and give a little context for, for fans that don't know so much about your career and, and how unique and tied to this you were. You were drafted in 94 when MJ was out of the league playing baseball. During your rookie season, uh, near the end of the year, he comes back. You're on the team for the second three-peat, but in 97-98, which is the final year of that second three-peat, you're traded to the Warriors, waived, and then you signed back with the Bulls before the playoffs. Um, and then after MJ's retirement, you play another year – or another two years, excuse me, in Chicago. So you have seen so many different angles of this story that we all just saw play out over the last five weeks. What was it like for you to revisit the last dance, uh, the years that were covered, and? you know, having seen so much of it the first time around? Well, it's been amazing to watch the Last Dance docuseries every Sunday. Um, it felt like one of my favorite uh, docuseries or TV shows like watching Power. Every Sunday, getting excited for the next episode, in suspense, waiting to see what's next. That's how I felt about the Last Dance. So, just sitting down with my family every Sunday, looking forward and excited to watch it was uh, was a great experience. Obviously, it brought back memories. I was able to reminisce. My kids were excited to see um, me on the screen, and uh, you know, because uh, my kids, my oldest daughter was born. She was just born in that 1997, uh, right before, right after I got traded and went to uh, Golden State. So. It was just a, uh, it was just amazing to watch it on TV. Like you said, I was drafted in 1994 in June, 21st pick. Fast forward to December, and I'm uh, laying on the couch in the uh, lounge of the Berto Center, taking a little nap before practice. And the next thing I know, I kind of turn around, the door opens to the lounge, and I hear somebody say, "What's up, young fella?" And I can't really make out who it is. I turn back around. I'm saying to myself, that can't be MJ. So I get up, um, get dressed for practice, go into the training room. And sure enough, it's MJ in there catching up with everybody. And so 
that kind of began the talk of him possibly coming back. But I was like, he's not going to come back. No way. I was obviously happy to be drafted by the Bulls, a championship uh, organization, the brand that they built. But I was like, man, I won't ever get to play with MJ. And then uh, fast forward a little bit, a week after that, he decides that he's going to start coming back. Phil tells us to keep it under wraps. We keep it secret. Don't talk to the media. MJ starts practicing with us in December. And it kind of builds from there. And it basically goes zero to 100. And so that was kind of how everything started. So it was, uh, it was exciting. Dickie, obviously, this is top of mind. Um, everyone saw the the end of the docuseries. I was watching live last night. Um, but for you, what was it like to be a part of it and then not be a part of it and then rejoin at the end? I mean, you really got a bunch of different perspective um, about, like, what other teams thought about MJ and the Bulls um, around the league. Yeah, um, it's interesting because you're right. I've seen, I was able to get a lot of different perspectives when I first got there and MJ wasn't there, but the Bulls still had a championship mentality, still was a high profile organization when I got there. And then I got to see when MJ came back, like I said, how things went from zero to 100 and intensity level as far as on the court, in practice, fans, uh, increase the attention, the media attention, the traveling rock band. So I got to see that. Um, I had just come from college, so I had won a Big East championship right before I got drafted. So I kind of understood what it took to win and leadership and roles and the team being on the same page. So all that was um, the case when I got to Chicago by an unbelievable leader, the best player to ever play the game. And then I got to see a whole nother angle after two championship runs, you know, just being an NBA and the competitive person that I am, wanted to try to see if I could have an expanded role with another team. I, I was traded in September of 1997 and that 97 for Scott Burrell. So I always mess with Scott Burrell. I'd known Scott before that playing in the college. Hmm. So I always mess with him and tell him that he needs to thank me every time he sees me for him being able to, get a championship ring. Um, but <laughs> it was different. It was different. Uh, going to Golden State, it was like night and day. And when they say the grass is not always green on the other side, I got a chance to see that um, coming from a championship caliber organization with a, with an unbelievable leader with the mentality and mental toughness of just staying focused to win championships, to a team that was on the other side of the spectrum where it was almost like a reality TV show, Jerry Springer type of thing, because that was the season that Spreewell choked Carlissimo. So, mm -hmm. you know, I got to see two different environments and, uh, you know, things didn't work out the way that I thought for myself. They made a trade with Joe Smith. They, you know, they moved on with Joe Smith, traded him away. And in, in that deal, a lot of different components had to happen, which, caused me to get waived but the good thing about it a week later my agent calls me he says Jerry just called him and said that uh Phil Jackson and MJ wanted me back so I was uh right back with the Bulls um I was right back with the Bulls in February 
So halfway through the season, but I debuted back at, right at the beginning of March. And that was just an unbelievable feeling to know that Phil and MJ respected my abilities, respected my, my hard work, respected that I was able to do my role. And then when I came back, it felt like an easy transition, like I had never left. So um, uh, I was blessed to be able to come back and humble for it and appreciative of them uh, wanting me back. And I think one of the reasons they may have wanted you back so badly, and you were quoted about this in an ESPN article over the weekend about some of the, the reserves of, uh, you know, the second three-peat team and, and the role that you guys played. You were, uh, you were a Carl Malone replica during a lot of those practices leading up to the finals those years. What was, what was that role like during practice sessions and trying as, as best you can to, to give a, a scouting representation of what Carl Malone was going to throw at the guys uh, in the game in, in the days following? Well, it was fun. It was fun. I mean, when I came back, Phil Phil had a meeting with me when I first came back and showed me the last dance literature, caught me up to speed, kind of gave me the um, Cliff Notes version of what had transpired in the time that I was gone. And he told me exactly what he needed me to do as far as my role. And it was pretty much the same as when I was there before, um, but it was expanded a little bit more because Phil kind of was transitioning into having more of a versatile, mobile, forward, center-type player to play with D-Rod at sometimes to be available if D-Rod or Luke got in foul trouble. So, um, you know, I was always a guy that understood my role, accepted my role, and tried to star in it. So one of the pieces of my role was definitely to emulate uh, Carl Malone in practices so they, you know, we could get a full perspective of what he was going to do in games. And, you know, we studied film, so I knew Carl Malone's game. And it was fun. It was actually super fun for me because I was living my best life. I got an opportunity to have the green light, and I got to expand out of my role and didn't have to worry about anybody yelling at me for doing something or whatever. And it got to show other capabilities and skills that I had in my game, but it was just me living my best life, having fun, and I took full advantage of it. And it's funny because um, Phil texts me uh, one after one of the Sundays. We would communicate through text, and then he finishes off the text and says, you are a great call, Malone. So uh, I just had fun with it, man. It was enjoyable. <laughs> when you uh, look back at your career and – all this time, I mean, what, what were the moments that really stick out to you um, about your time in the league? But obviously, I think your glory days were with the Bulls and, and just being a part of that. Um, the things that stick out, like I said, I had just won a Big East championship. And I was, I was successful in the grassroots arena, playing on the circuit in AAU when I was in high school. So I was able to win a little bit. So I would say the things that stuck out to me was one, being drafted by the Bulls. That made, made me really feel like my hard work had paid off. Two, another, time, another thing that stood out was just the presence, the presence and preparation of MJ coming back, the greatest player ever. So that was just an um, amazing feel. Obviously, I had never played with a player at that that is the greatest player, most popular and most recognizable 
person in the world. So that was um, interesting, fun, and uh, unique to have to process that adjustment. Um, again, I use uh, for, you know the terminology zero to 100. So that stood out. Uh, just seeing all the things that um, about MJ that you see from afar on TV, and now you see in reality, you see with Scotty, you see with Dennis Rodman, you saw with the team, that stood out. And then just experiencing the championship win, wins and the, the championship parades at Grant Park, man, those are just big moments, surreal moments that stand out. And then there's that last season, um, knowing that that was going to be the last time we were all going to be together and just finishing on a note with a championship, but just the way it finishes stands out with MJ getting that steal and that signature shot with the exaggerated follow-through. I mean, it's like, who could have ever wrote that story? And then obviously um, there was some, there was some, you know, some moments in between that stand out, like MJ throwing me the ball for a last second shot right before halftime where I make a three and run off the court and act like this is what I do on a regular basis. And then when, <laughs> when, when they all come in the locker room, I look at MJ and say, you made the right decision. So stuff like that stood out. But just, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the, all those things stood out and then they all were, you know, um, capitalized by the fact that I always think about, and this last dance documentary makes me realize and makes me even more humble of the fact that I was a part of history and it can never be taken away from me and being on championship teams and being something that'll be talked about forever and my name's being on the banners in the United Center. So those are the things that stand out. So there was a moment, and I believe it was episode nine on Sunday, it was game seven against uh, the Pacers and it was getting down to crunch time of that game. And a lot of the players were talking about how if the Pacers were to go up by five, you guys needed to stop because if they were going to go up by five with like, I think it was like six minutes left in the game, it would have been daunting and incredibly difficult for you guys to overcome. In today's day and age, that sounds so weird. Just a, a, a minuscule five point lead with so much time left, but the game was so different than as somebody that has, been around the game for a long time since your retirement you've done tv and worked as a scout for about a, a decade now so you've seen the changes to the game over the course of the last couple of decades what, what is it like for you to hear something like that in, in retrospect well i mean i'm not making this up in the moment after we lost and had to go to a game seven the unbelievable leaders in mj I mean, it was just the level of assurance that we wasn't going to lose that series. And the approach that Phil Jackson had as being a coach, you coach from a mental aspect and a mental calmness aspect of embracing the moment, embracing what the moment brings and trusting the preparation and never taking your eye off the goal. All those things combined over the course of the time I was there, pe people I mean, this is not just saying it. We just, we knew that it was going to be tough. We knew that it was a game seven, but nobody ever wavered that we didn't have the best chance to finish that series and win it. We had the best player in the game at the time, the best player to ever play the game. And we had seen over and over him be able to make and will us to wins when needed to be. So 
it was just a focus of what we had to do. It was a focus of embracing the moment. And me personally, the way MJ went about it mentally going into that game, I knew we were fine. And five points, yeah, you know, Steve makes a shot off that jump ball, which was a big shot. And those are, those are things that happen throughout the course of the game that can be big moments, you know, um, from a mental aspect to kind of change the dynamics or change the complexity or change the vibe or change the flow or the momentum of the game. But I think even if he did not make that shot, I'm still betting on MJ. And um, I've seen it over and over again. And I had no, no waivers, no fears in the fact that I knew MJ would will us to winning that series one way or another. And guys, like he said, guys stepped up, made shots, guys did their role, which we had a professional team of guys that knew that they were accountable for their roles. And MJ made sure you were accountable as well as him making himself accountable. So there was no fear. Um, you know, it was always, we knew that with MJ, we were going to have the highest chance to come out of game seven. Um, with the win. And like Reggie said in the documentary, and which I think is the clear point that people need to understand, is the championship pedigree took over in the moment mm -hmm. with the best player to ever play the game. One of my, our last uh, question about the last dance and something that just went through my head watching throughout is it's really emphasized the, the drama with Jerry Krause, Phil Jackson, MJ, Scotty Pippen. Um, and of course, MJ was, a big part of the documentary in general. So it's through his perspective to an extent, but for you guys, um, the rest of the players, were you aware of that drama? Like, was it ever present in your every day or um, were you able to, to just talk about it and then move on? I mean, I know that he was a killer with his focus on playing basketball and all that, but it's so present in the documentary that I was curious how, how much it impacted you guys um, with your every day. Yeah, it wasn't a big impact on our everyday. I know at least from my perspective, the way I saw it. Again, I was one of the youngest guys on the team. So um, when I heard Phil say that Jerry told him he could have went, you know, um, won all the games throughout that season and he still wasn't going to come back as coach, that was my first time hearing that. I wasn't privy to that conversation. Phil never discussed that with us as a team. Phil did a good job of managing egos, managing brands, managing personalities, managing the talent. He did a good job of that and keeping us focused on the goal and not letting upstairs infiltrate in what we had as a team and what we were trying to accomplish. He did a good job of that. So I wasn't privy to that conversation that Jerry had with Phil, but we all knew that there was tension between Phil and upstairs and MJ and upstairs. I mean, that was that was known, the energy you could tell whenever Jerry was around on the bus, on the plane. So we knew there was tension. And, um, but Phil did a good job to keep us, to keep that minimized from what we had to do downstairs. And so some of those things um, that I heard, I wasn't surprised because I saw the tension and how it was building. And when I came back and Phil caught me up to speed with the last dance literature and where things were as far as the energy and attention level at that point in time, I wasn't surprised. And I figured it was going to get to a boiling point at some point in time 
which it did. And so that made it even more special for us to stay locked in, knowing that there was a high chance that this was going to be the last time this team was going to be together. So yeah. that's kind of how that played out. I want to talk a little bit about your career as a scout. You've been with the Wizards organization for the last two years as a scout after eight years with the Hornets organization. And there's so many different angles to the scouting industry in the NBA. There's you know, advanced opponent scouts, personnel scouts, college scouts, international. Uh, what is your role within the Wizards department? So my role is uh, I'm a scout that I scout majority NBA draft prospects who play in college, um, who play internationally, or guys who have um, found a different route, uh, a non-traditional route. But I, I really can't say non-traditional because all these different avenues of getting to the NBA are becoming traditional now. But I scout for us for the draft and for um, the building of our, our franchise, our team. So I spend a lot of time watching college games, watching some high school kids, uh, watching international kids to prepare for the draft so we can um, use our draft picks to uh, gain a, a very good asset to, to help our franchise. So that's what I do. That's kind of been, that process, I guess I should say, has kind of been jumbled up over the last couple months. How has your role changed uh, as we've now been, what, over two months without basketball here that obviously impacted both international, the college game, everything. So how, how are you and the department coping with that process leading up to a, a draft that is at some point going to happen this summer? Yeah, it's kind of like I was as a player. I mean, I remember after the after the 97-98 season, as a player, we went into a lockout, and it was a shortened season and 50-game season. Well, that whole time of a lockout, I mean, I approached it like a player. I, I did what I needed to do as far as working out, training, watching film, um, just making sure I'm as prepared as possible when things start rolling again. And I have the same approach and us as an organization has the same approach in the, in the front office and scouting department where, you know, we're trusting in our work that we've done all season watching guys. We're watching a lot of video and film on guys to make sure we um, feel solid about our evaluations. We're having ongoing conversations on conference calls as a staff every day, continuing to get closer and closer to um, being um, where we want to be when draft day comes. And so watching a lot of video, a lot of, a lot of conference calls. We're interviewing prospects now um, through Zoom, which is a new, <laughs> which is the new norm now. It's pretty interesting. Obviously, it's a little different than being in a room physically with that prospect. But nevertheless, still doing our work, still gathering intel. So the process is still going. It's just from a different dynamic of, doing your work from your home and everybody being visual through video conferencing. So it's a little different, but you know, I'm getting used to it. And uh, it's been helpful to be home with my family for somebody that scouts and is on the road all the time, but we're, we're still moving along with business as usual and high level preparation. So we can select the best player that fits uh, our Washington Wizards organization. And uh, Dickie, just one more question for you. Um, 
what do you have to say as a former athlete? Um, you played in the league and, and when you scout, um, what would your advice be just for young players trying to, to come up in the league and then um, set up their themselves for their post playing career? I mean, you, you've really done a lot since you retired with um, your training company. And then, you know, you were doing coverage for ESPN and FS1. And now you've been with the Wizards for a few years after being with the Hornets. So just what would you tell a lot of these young kids about, hey, you're not going to be a basketball player forever? Um, I used to always have a saying, man, that the way a player is on the court is probably 99.9% the way they are off the court with their regular life. So I would tell young generation, kids growing up, you know, if you have a dream of playing in the NBA, that's great. And and continue to put the work in um, for that dream and surround yourself with the people who have your best interests in hand, the people that will sacrifice their lives as much as you're sacrificing to get to that dream. Um, and I would say define your skill set, define who you are as a player, and create yourself in the most valuable prospect you can be if that's with one skill or if that's with a variety of skills and make yourself a reliable player and as you prepare for making the NBA equally prepare for life after the NBA and by doing that build relationships throughout that course build your relationships throughout that throughout that course and kind of spend your time figuring out what you want to do in life and cultivate those relationships because at the end of the day, when you are in basketball and you move on, those relationships are going to be important for you to progress into the next phase of your life. Um, but that's, those are the things that I would tell young generations aspiring to be an NBA player and, and preparing for life after NBA or after professional basketball, or after sports period. That's what I would tell them. No doubt. Well, Dickie, this was fantastic, man. Thank you so much for taking the time. We hope you can continue to stay safe and, and healthy and keep grinding away on, on the tape. Oh, man, I appreciate it. appreciate you guys having me on. And uh, you guys stay safe out here and uh, wish everybody the best, man.